When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the beginning of this series, we said we were going to bring you through a stunning period of Irish history. We're now at the end of that period. September 1970, we're at the trial. Four men stand accused of conspiring to bring hundreds of guns and thousands of rounds of ammunition into the country. If found guilty, they could end up in jail for five years. But it wasn't just the four men who were on trial. This young country was on trial. Remember, it was only 50 years since the British had left and some of those who fought them were still in the governing party. Kira Meehan, the historian, says the arms trial of 1970 had a lot riding on it. There was so much at stake for the political system coming out of this trial because of the various nature of the players involved. The Gardaí, the army, politicians, ministers, cabinet ministers, senior ones. The legitimacy of the state in many ways was on trial. And one aspect of political life that was on trial that autumn in 1970 was the fact that the political system sat uncomfortably close to the judicial system. Most judges had been appointed by the party in government and, as we've heard, the main prosecutor, the Attorney-General, was a member of that cabinet. And while everyone swore impartiality, that uneasy closeness lobbed a grenade into the trial, just six days in. And, in fact, made for a jerky start to the whole process. Here's what happened. In the summer beforehand, they couldn't find a judge to take the case. Too many of them had been appointed by the party that one of the accused, former minister Charles Hahi, belonged to. The man who eventually had to take the case, the President of the High Court, publicly expressed his difficulties. Mr Justice O'Queeve said he'd been surprised at what he called the hysterical reaction of the newspapers. Partly because he had just been Attorney General and had just sat at the same cabinet table as Charles Hahi. But having said this publicly, he had to backpedal. He did not believe this would affect his ability to try the case fairly and impartially, but there was a danger that some of the public might not see the matter in this light. As the barrister David Burke says, This was a car crash. The whole trial was a mess from start to finish. David Burke is going to be taking us through the courtroom events of autumn 1970. As we said, he's a barrister, but he's also written a book on the arms crisis called Lies and Deception. The other man who's going to be taking us through the process is Michael Heaney. One of the great trials of the 20th century, indeed in total Irish history. Michael Heaney has also written a book on the arms crisis called The Plot That Never Was, which was drawn from six years of doctoral research on the topic, during which he came across these remarkable tapes from the trial. It's a prosecution which ought never to have seen the light of day. This is Charles Hawhey's barrister Neil McCarthy speaking to the jury. But it is one conceived in panic. Nurtured in rumour, malice, and born in confusion and spite. But they weren't the only tapes Michael Heaney has brought to our understanding of the arms crisis. But it's one of the only trials where we actually know how the jury arrived at their verdict. That's right. 
Michael has brought us inside the jury room so we can see how the jury decided on whether the men were guilty or not guilty. And we hear and meet with some of those jurors. When we went in, we were saying that that's a revelation. So you felt that was the moment when the trial changed? That was the critical moment, yeah. It was the critical moment. You're listening to episode 8 of Gunplot. I'm Nicolene Greer and together with my colleague Ronan Kelly and the RTE Documentary and One team, we are unpicking the stories that make up one of the biggest political scandals Ireland has ever seen, the arms crisis of 1970. And remember, you can catch Gunplot, the TV documentary on the RTE player. We left you at the end of episode 7 with Colonel Heffern leaving Adam and Eve's church on the south side of the River Liffey in Dublin city centre. He crossed over the river by the bridge named after the Irish patriot O'Donovan Rossa and he crossed the road to the huge domed complex of the forecourts and the central criminal court. Under that dome is the round hall of the forecourts. Most mornings before the courts sit, it's full of people. Lawyers, gardi, accused, friends and family. On that morning, the opening day of the arms trial in the autumn of 1970, the round hall was especially packed. Numbers swollen by members of the public. Twelve-year-old Jackie Kelly was there. The trial began on the 22nd of September 1970. She's the daughter of one of the accused, Captain James Kelly, the Army Intelligence Officer. Here she is reading her memories in a recording she and her siblings made last year to mark the 50th anniversary of the arms crisis in 2020. The three oldest children attended, although not all at the same time. My aunt from America had bought us nylon-coloured ties for our hair and I remember wearing those and my school coat. The venue was the forecourts in one of the courts off the round hall. I remember the airiness of the round hall the wooden benches along the perimeter, the steps and the heavy doors into the courtroom itself. Another child of the arms crisis was Tom Heffron. His father was Colonel Michael Heffron, the man who was walking into the round hall, having been praying in the church just across the river. Tom describes the round hall in the forecourts as intimidating. It's a hellhole if you're under pressure and the insiders are running the show And it was into this scene that Tom's father, the retired director of army intelligence, stepped on the first morning of the arms trial. So anyway, he went into that bear pit and he didn't know who Jimmy Kelly's solicitor was. Jimmy Kelly was Captain James Kelly of Irish Army Intelligence, one of the four accused. He asked for Jimmy Kelly's solicitor. Frank Fitzpatrick came forward. I met him in the main hall of the court at all dignified person. This is Solicitor Frank Fitzpatrick speaking to The Detail, a Belfast-based investigative website. Who said to me that I spent two hours in the church this morning and I am not going to commit perjury. I have to tell you that your client is telling the truth. Incredible. One of the main prosecution witnesses, a man who was supposed to help the state to convict the alleged gun plotters, 
had just walked over to the defence and said, I'm on your side. You can imagine the fascination with this trial. A member of the Irish government standing trial in a criminal case. And this case wasn't just making national headlines, but headlines all over the world. Not only was there gun running involved, but also flamboyant and ambitious politicians. A passionate and outspoken army officer, a mysterious and exotic Belgian businessman, and a proud IRA man who had done what many people down south say they would have done, and that is defend his area from police and mob attack. Oh, the court was absolutely packed, chock or block. Reporters Frank Kilfeather and Tom Cochran. Anywhere anybody can squeeze in, standing room only. They were outside and every day was the same. You just had to grab your seats. It's when you had to beat the people out of the press box, you know, because they wanted to get in there as well. It was unbelievable, the atmosphere at the time. Very tense atmosphere there. And all the top-ranking lawyers of the day representing the prosecution and the accused. Such was the interest in the trial that the court service assigned a second overflow court for the members of the public to sit in. And the proceedings from the main court were piped into this overflow court over a public address system. The public may have been eager to watch the spectacle of such a high-profile, high-stakes case, but for the accused and their families, it was a tense wait for the trial to begin. Jackie Kelly, Captain Kelly's daughter. At one time, a journalist asked me if I believed my father would be acquitted, and I gave an emphatic yes. The next day, there was a piece in the newspaper to the effect that I didn't really know what was going on. I remember feeling annoyed about this put-down. Of course I knew what was going on. Eventually, everyone went into court and the proceedings began. The first job was to choose the jurors. And I remember one little man, he says, Your Honour, I, I don't want to serve in this, I, I object. And he said, why not? Well, he says, I've already made up my mind. And he was told in no uncertain terms to get out, to get out. The prosecution stood up first and brought up their witnesses to attempt to prove that the four men had conspired to bring in the arms illegally. The first star witness for the prosecution was Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. You should know here that Jim Gibbons was perhaps the most important witness for the prosecution. Barrister David Burke explains why by pointing out the questionable way we've been using a word in our previous episodes. I'm greatly puzzled as to why you keep describing the importation attempt as illegal. You haven't even got to the trial yet. This is pivotal. The whole thing revolves around whether the importation attempt was Illegal or legal. Put simply, very, very simply, if Minister for Defence Jim Gibbons knew about the importation plan and didn't stop it, then it could be regarded as legal and the accused would be found innocent. If he didn't, it was illegal and the accused could be convicted. Do you remember Gibbons on the stand? Yeah. What was he like? Uh, well, uh, James Gibbons was very cool, calm and collected. He, he was an intelligent man now. You know, he was quiet and he was just steadfast in maintaining that he had not been part of the plot, that he had only in recent times learned of it and he didn't deviate from that. David Burke says Minister Gibbons may not have deviated in his testimony, but it was contradictory. One of the attempts to bring the arms in it took place in Dublin Port, and yet, 
And I want to stress this. Gibbons himself, the Minister for Defence, the main prosecution witness, he got into the box and he gave evidence that he was aware of this, that he'd spoken to Captain Kelly about it, that he was aware of what had happened, that it had failed, that he was aware of the forthcoming attempts to rectify the failure by bringing the weapons in again at a later stage. Now, if this was a conspiracy, illegal, to bring in weapons illegally by a rogue element of military intelligence, what on earth is he doing talking to Captain Kelly? Why did he pick up the phone and have him arrested immediately, have him detained, have him court-martialed? After Minister Gibbons, the next star prosecution witness was the retired Director of Army Intelligence, Colonel Heffron. But as we've heard, he decided that he wouldn't be testifying according to plan. His testimony was going to actually help the defence case for Captain Kelly. This is Captain Kelly speaking in 1995. Heffern was asked a question at the arms trail. Did they ever hold back any information? Did they act outside my uh, authority? And so on. He answered them all that I didn't. Colonel Heffern confirmed that everything that Captain Kelly had done had been communicated to him and he had communicated it on to the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. Harry McGee of the Irish Times. He was saying that not alone was Captain Kelly not working of his own volition, but he was working under very specific instructions and was communicating everything he did, not only to Colonel Heffern, but through Colonel Heffern, to Jim Gibbons and, by extension, to the government. And that's why his evidence was so crucial, because it was one of the things that really undermined the state's case to prosecute the defendants for a conspiracy to import arms. Next in the stand was another star witness for the prosecution, Peter Berry, the Secretary of the Department of Justice. He did stick to the testimony expected of him, but he did leave out one important piece of information. His claim that he had told the Taoiseach Jack Lynch what was going on when the Taoiseach came to visit him in hospital. It would be another ten years before Peter Berry would reveal publicly that claim that he had told Jack Lynch about the gun-running plot And of course, during the trial, the defence had no idea of this. He said nothing about this. David Burke. The man was meant to have told the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And yet he suppressed this. And what was it he was suppressing? He was suppressing a discussion that he had had with Jack Lynch, at which he had told Jack Lynch that Captain Kelly had been discussing the procurement of arms. Now, by what conceivable stroke of anybody's imagination was that not highly relevant to whether this was an illegal conspiracy or not. And yet Berry completely excluded it. But then it was the turn for Peter Berry to be cross-examined by the defence and the barrister for Albert Loikes, the Belgian businessman, stood up. His name was Ernest Wood and he asked Peter Berry if he had written a letter of good character for Mr Loikes the previous year to allow him to travel to Belgium. Peter Berry said that he had, and Ernest Wood sat down, having made his point. But Peter Berry went on and asked the judge if he could say why he had been asked to write a letter of good character for Albert Likes. The judge said he could. So Peter Berry explained that this was because the Belgian authorities had accused Albert Likes of what he referred to as neo-Nazi activities and didn't want him back in the country. At this, Ernest Wood jumped up and objected to such personal details being mentioned in court. Judge O'Keefe said that personal details were just what Ernest Wood wanted, heard in court. Ernest Wood disagreed vehemently. But that's his job. 
It's his job. His, his job isn't there to sit back like a pussycat and purr. His job is to attack and shut down anything that's unfair, anything that goes beyond the permissible line in a prosecution and, and attack it, but not to go beyond that line. But Ernest Wood went further. He said the judge's decision to allow Peter Berry to mention the neo-Nazi allegations about Albert Likes in court were typical of the unfair way the judge was conducting the trial. At that, the judge left the bench, apparently in a fury, and the case was adjourned for lunch. When the trial resumed after lunch, Ernest Wood stood up and said that his client had agreed that Peter Berry's information could be heard in court. But Judge O'Keeve had made his mind up. He was going to discharge the jury. Despite the pleas of the various barristers, he did just that, and the trial collapsed just six days in. Within weeks, a new trial was scheduled and a new judge was found. Again, there was an overflow court made available for members of the public and again, there was a public address system to relay the proceedings from the main court into the overflow court. But this time, the public address system was also routed to a tape recorder and recordings were made of every day's hearing. And each evening, the Attorney General came down to listen to the tapes. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Perfectly entitled to, he's a busy man, he couldn't be there. And he could listen to the tapes. Why and who exactly is the originator of the taping is a mystery that I'm not aware of the answer to. But as the transcripts, the proper transcripts have disappeared, it fills a huge void. And that's why the tapes are valuable. As David Burke says, the transcripts of the arms trials are missing, so authors and historians have had to rely on newspaper reports. The fact that tapes of the trial came to light, as we said, thanks to the PhD research of Michael Heaney, is therefore of benefit. But sadly, just two afternoon recordings from the 14-day trial have survived. But even those tapes give us an incredible opportunity to hear inside an Irish courtroom. And this is a first for Irish broadcasting, thanks to the research work of Michael Heaney and the permission of the Irish courts. Mr Justice Hentry said at the arms conspiracy trial today that the court and jury were not... This new trial before Justice Seamus Hentry began on October the 6th, 1970, and the prosecution lined up their witnesses again. When the trial resumed this morning, the cross-examination of Mr James Gibbons, Minister for Agriculture and former Minister for Defence, was continued by Mr McCarthy, counsel for Mr Hahe. Said Mr McCarthy, I suggest you knew about this intended importation of arms and that you agreed to it, and it was only when the balloon went up and everybody knew about it that you panicked. Mr Gibbons replied, that is quite wrong. But the prosecution lineup of witnesses had one name missing for this second trial. They dropped the retired army colonel, Heffron, the man who had testified in favour of Captain Kelly in the first trial. But the judge took the really unusual step of calling Colonel Heffron himself as what's called a bench witness. The judge in the arms conspiracy trial has called a witness who gave evidence during the first trial, but who was not examined by counsel for the prosecution this time. The judge obviously had seen what had happened in the earlier trial where this witness, Colonel Heffron, had come along, had given his evidence and what he had said. And when he realised that the state wasn't going to call him, he decided that he would call him as the bench witness. A bench witness is something that's virtually unheard of. 
Asked if he had been reporting to Mr. Gibbons on Captain Kelly's activities, Colonel Heffron said he had raised the matter several times. Asked did he discuss with the minister the fact that Captain Kelly was still actively engaged in the importation of arms, Colonel Heffron replied, I'm sure I did. Asked did he get any instructions from the minister for defence in relation to Captain Kelly's activities in the importation of arms, Colonel Heffron said he didn't. This is Tom McCochran at the Four Courts. And then, in a trial full of surprises, one of the accused, the Belfast Republican, John Kelly, took the stand, but not to testify. Instead, he made a speech. He spoke extemporaneously. This is Harry McGee from the Irish Times newspaper. He made a statement to the court which explained everything about his own life, about his upbringing, about his family, its republicanism, about his own involvement as a young man in the Republican movement during the late 1950s and more laterally his role as a member of the defence committees. And he explained what was happening in Belfast. He explained what was happening in Derry and what was happening was terrible. And it would have elicited outrage and shock and sympathy and even the most passive people, people who would have been opposed to violence. And he was quite explicit in saying that he came down looking for arms and that at every stage that he had been speaking to the relevant officers who were in charge of customs, and they were well aware, and he was upfront with them, that what was coming in was a consignment of arms. So it wasn't as if there was anything clandestine going on from his perspective. It was as if the whole thing was happening in the open. It's... So extraordinarily rare that this occurs, that there's very little precedent. David Burke, barrister and author. He, he got into the witness box, he made his speech, he had his say, and he stepped out of it. I was there when John Kelly made his famous speech from the dock. Captain Kelly's daughter, Jackie. John spoke eloquently without notes, and when he finished, there was a loud, spontaneous burst of applause. At least one member of the jury, by the way, uh, clapped him when he was finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to remind you, the four men were charged with conspiring to import arms. They stood to go to jail for five years. The four men, former Minister for Finance Charles Hahi, Belfast Republican John Kelly, Belgian-born businessman Albert Likes, and the Army Intelligence Officer Captain Jim Kelly. After John, it was my father's turn. Some people cheered and the judge threatened to clear the gallery if there was any more of that. I watched him as I sat in the front bench of the visitors' gallery, walking up the narrow aisle to take the stand. Captain Kelly's daughter, Jackie. And this is her aunt, Captain Kelly's sister, Teresa, who came down from Cavan to the trial. Most days, yes, I was running up, most days. Yeah. I, I had four children at home. I had to look after them too. And what was it like? Can you remember? Mostly it was quite tense, yes. Depending who was giving evidence, of course. But um, it could be quite tense. And were you very worried when you were sitting there watching it? Yes, yes, yeah, it could be. Captain Kelly went on, I told him the idea would be to bring in the arms here on a boat and I am sure Dublin was mentioned. Asked what did Mr Gibbons say to that, Captain Kelly replied, oh, he accepted it and approved of it. The minister was briefed by me on this plan whenever it was necessary, whenever the minister required. It's remarkable because he didn't speak like that at all. Oh, yeah. Michael Heaney. This is the battlefield. Mm. And it's a fair summary of your position to say that not only did Mr 
Gibbons know what you were doing, but he approved and was enthusiastic about it and authorized your doing it. Is that right? Well, whatever about the use of words, and you seem to be concentrating on this enthusiasm part very much. As far as I'm concerned, and we will just be very logical about this, I briefed and fully informed the minister. The minister knew and approved. This is basically in the courtroom war to the knife. This is the counsel for the state, Seamus McKenna, going for Captain Kelly by the throat. And this is Captain Kelly, the cavern man, the tough army officer, hunkering down in the witness box. And at any stage he asked me questions, I answered those questions. And I made every endeavour to explain to him fully. He was quite staccato, wasn't he, when he was talking? Yes, because the more you say, the more room you give the barrister to um, exploit. So he was just giving enough. I explained to you in detail. It's all in the voice. You can see him with his fists clenched. The minister fully accepted this. He's not giving McKenna one inch. McKenna here is Seamus McKenna, barrister for the prosecution. And so far as you are concerned, being a servant officer in military intelligence, he was the man in control. He was the minister for defence. He was the man in control of the plan which you with others were executing. Is that right? Of course. Well, there's no doubt about that. I detect perhaps wrongly a slight no, note I, of I can't understand why you were asking this question. I told you the man was the Minister for Defence. I was a serving army officer. Kelly's evidence has to be completely rubbished and he has to be shown to be unreliable and not telling the truth. You were under his control in your execution of this plan. Is that right? Yes, because I kept him fully informed. And Kelly is none of that, unfortunately, for the state. Kelly is a superb witness, very resourceful, very tough, schooled in army discipline. This plan originated after my, what I considered, very pertinent conversations on the 2nd of April with the people back here. Yes. That it had become... Captain Kelly had a mentor throughout all this, according to his sister, Teresa. That lovely man, Colonel Heffernan, would come over to see him each evening. To his house? Yeah, they would go to the sitting room and they would have their consultation about the affairs in the court. Captain Kelly also said that a meeting Mr Gibbons suggested to him that he should go and live in the North uh, to carry out his duties properly, but he told the minister there was no need to do this. This is Tom McCochran at the Four Courts. If the arms came under your control, you visualised they would remain under your control while you were still a serving army officer. Of course. He is not prepared to give a fraction of an inch to the state, and the state, of course, fails to break this witness. Who was going to look after them when you were doing your other soldierly duties? I think this is quite obvious from the place where the guns were to be stored, that they were fairly safe, and there's no point plugging any further. Thanks, Captain. Thank you. And I want to emphasize, gentlemen, at the outset, 
After Captain Kelly's cross-examination, it was time for the defence to present their case for Charles Hawhey. This was done by barrister Peter Maguire. Nor do I intend, gentlemen, to deal in detail... We should mention here that juries back in 1970 were all male. I suggest to you, gentlemen, that you should unhesitatingly accept the account of that conversation as will be given to you by Mr Hawhey, and that you should cast aside the account of it as given by Mr Berry and treat it with the contempt that it deserves. You know, there's a little bit of a kind of a street fighter feel to it as well. He's And there's a bit of theatre. And furthermore, gentlemen, that Mr Berry did say that it was the most stupidly handled affair that he had ever heard of in his career. But he's doing what a good criminal lawyer will do. He will point out all the weaknesses, all the gaps, everything that's wrong with the prosecution, without any mercy, without any fear. Do you think, gentlemen, for one moment, that if Mr Hawley had a guilty conscience, that if Mr Hawley had been involved in a criminal conspiracy to import arms illegally into this country, that he would phone up Mr Berry, the Secretary of the Department of Justice, to talk to him in this way. Isn't the gentleman the last thing that he would have thought of doing? But as soon as Mr Fagan had phoned him about This is the preamble to the big moment of the trial. There's no question that whatever about Captain Kelly and the other accused, Hawhey is the star attraction. He may have been the star attraction for the public, but reporter Tom McCochran says that for his own political party, during the trial, Hawhey was a pariah. That was my view of it. And as I say, I, I talked to him. I was the only one who talked to him. I don't remember any of the Fianna Fáil supporters being with him as he walked around under the dome. As I recall, a rather lonely figure. That was my image of him and my memory of it. Hawhey is at a cusp here. He's, he's had a brilliant political career, but he's in danger of going to jail his evidence in front of this jury and this judge is going to be crucial in terms of whether he goes to jail or doesn't. And then on day 10 of the trial, the 19th of October, 1970, it was time for Charles Hawhey to take the stand. Reporter Frank Kilfeather was there. Immaculately dressed and totally impassive. The tension was just absolutely deadly in the courtroom packed full and right out onto the outside. Mr Hawhey said that the first he heard that between twenty and £30,000 was spent on arms and ammunition was when Captain Kelly gave evidence about it. Mr Hawhey was further questioned about his actions on April 18th when it was brought to his notice that the special branch were interested in a cargo due at Dublin Airport. Hawhey's defence at the arms trial was that, unlike the three co-accused, they acknowledged that they believed they were working under the authority of the Irish state. Stephen Kelly is a historian who's written a book on Charles Hawhey and Northern Ireland. Hawhey didn't deny that he was aware of their actions. What he denied is that he had any knowledge that it was guns and ammunition that were being brought into the state. In some ways, Hawhey did certainly leave them out to dry. Mr Walsh suggested that not merely was it simply a question of it being present to his mind that the cargo might be arms and ammunition, but that he appreciated it could be nothing else. Mr Hawhey said, no, he must repeat that while he could not exclude from his mind the possibility that it was arms and ammunition of some sort in pursuance of the contingency plan, the actual contents of the consignment were of very secondary and minor importance to him. He said he didn't know for sure what was in the consignment. David Burke, barrister and author. 
but he had a very shrewd idea. And that had it been said to him expressly that, look, these are arms, he said it would have made no difference because that was contemplated by the contingency plan and he still would have assisted. This contingency plan is the February 6th directive we heard about earlier, where the Irish army were told to prepare to send guns and ammunition over the border to the north if needed. Where he fell down and where he was dishonest, because he was on oath, was he said he didn't have express knowledge of it. And I don't think there's anybody really who believes that. I think everybody believes he knew exactly what was uh, coming in. I can't say whether my father was right or wrong in what he said at the arms trial in, in his evidence. This is Charles Hawhey's son, Sean. Whether my father lied or not, I don't know. Uh, he was facing a long jail term, so I guess he did what he had to do in the very difficult circumstances that he found himself in. Uh, Mr Walsh said, why didn't he ring the Minister for Defence at home in Kilkenny? tell him a misunderstanding had arisen and, if necessary, to come to Dublin immediately. Mr Hawhey said the Minister for Defence was a farmer and was very rarely readily available at his home. He regarded the situation as urgent and decided that the immediate thing to do was to send word through Mr Fagan, that's his personal secretary, to Army Intelligence that they better stop this matter going through. This is Tom McCochran at the Four Courts. So far, the defence case had been that the government knew that the guns were coming in and that when they came in, they were for the use of the Irish Army. That is, that they were to remain in storage controlled by the Irish Army. It seemed to be going well. Colonel Heffron, Captain Kelly and now Charles Hawhey's testimony had all supported the case. But then, just after Charles Hawhey left the stand, the most dangerous moment for the defence occurred. I'm required at this stage to make a ruling on the submission of law The jury were sent out and the judge made an announcement. If any accused uh, thereupon proceeded to agree to import arms and ammunition... This tape is of a legal argument which took place... Michael Heaney. ...an authority given by the Minister for Defence... What happened was that the judge said... He was considering telling the jury that the arms could not be for the use of the defence forces. And had he done so, had he given that direction to the jury, that would have completely undercut the defence case. In support of his argument, the judge referred to the precedent of a case relating to marked diesel that was heard in a British court. But if the same oil was used for stationary plant or heating purposes... Uh, it had a red dye added to it and it attracted only a duty of tuppence a gallon. The judge basically shocked the defence. Anybody wish to say anything further? And Tom Finlay immediately rose to his feet. Tom Finlay was the barrister for Captain Kelly. I don't, at the moment, with great respect, Lord, quite understand on what basis your Lordship puts it. The provisions of subsection 8. And said, if you're suggesting that the jury would not be allowed to consider this issue, this would be entirely wrong. The word authority, my lord, it may be of some assistance to your lordship, but it has been (coughs) defined. Well, perhaps you tell me what you submit. It does mean, Mr. Findler, we might not need authority. Well, what I respectfully submit is this, my lord, that if 
And there followed then a 40-minute discussion in which Neil McCarthy for Charles Hawhey weighed in, as did the state prosecution barrister. Our submission will be to the effect that the evidence just doesn't measure up to it. There's nothing in the, in the act itself which in any way purports. The defence case was that the arms were going to come in and be held by Captain Kelly. He was going to hold these arms under his lock and key and under his control. And the issue was whether Kelly's control amounted to army control. But Finlay was absolutely insistent to the judge that this was a matter for the jury to decide. It was a pivotal issue. It's not given any specialised meaning in the act, my lord. Counsel for the defence pulled the judge back from making a direction that would have absolutely undercut the defence of the four accused. As a result, the judge drew back. Of course, no ruling for me at this stage. I shall make no ruling that would inhibit any counsel from making such admissions as he thinks proper on the evidence. He left it to the jury. And then all eyes were on the jury. The defence and prosecution made their closing speeches. The arms conspiracy trial. The prosecuting counsel has told the jury the state's admission is that the attempted importation of arms and ammunition was unorthodox, irregular, unnecessary and illicit. And then the judge gave the jury his direction. The judge famously, at the end of the trial, says the evidence between Gibbons and Hawhey cannot be reconciled. And people have drawn a conclusion from that is that one person told the truth and one person didn't. My evidence in the court was correct and true on that occasion and remains correct and true. This is Jim Gibbons speaking 10 years later in 1980. He insisted he was honest and truthful on the stand. You had a glaring conflict of testimony with Mr. Hawhey, who was accused of taking part in this conspiracy to import arms. You must recall that I swore that on my oath that I told the truth. But obviously, um, Mr. Hawhey swore his evidence in court as well, yes. and what yes. he says is the truth. How do you resolve that, uh, that I conflict? That I can only be answerable for the truth of what I said myself on oath, and I accept that responsibility. I have spoken the truth. So now, it was up to the jury to decide, and time for them to withdraw and deliberate on a verdict. Now, most juries will return a verdict that at least some people think is the wrong one. This jury was about to deliberate and deliver a verdict that would come in for severe criticism for many years later. So much so that in 2001, some members of the jury were still smarting from those criticisms, which led one of them to approach the historian Michael Heaney. At that time, Michael was working as a TV producer in RTE. I made several programmes on the arms crisis. After the first one, I was approached by a member of the jury, stopped in my tracks, finger on the chest. You need to talk to me. This juror felt very aggrieved and anxious that it should be clear to the world that they had brought in a a verdict on the evidence. By 2001, eight of the original 12-man jury had died. The four remaining spoke to Michael Heaney about the trial and he recorded interviews with two of them. At the end of the third week, or very close, we went into the jury room. Almost as soon as the jurors got into the jury room, one of their numbers spoke out. And he made a remark about 12 good Irishmen on the jury anyway. This won't take too long. 
and we'll take account on it. They're not guilty, not one of them. He indicated that he believed firmly all the work. before any discussion. He, he said if we're Irishmen at all, if there are any Irishmen in here at all, we're not going to waste our time in here. But he said we better stay here for a decent time. Like, so we all got a bit of paper. We wrote guilty or not guilty. Yeah. Ten of them said not guilty and two said guilty. And then the two guys that... And one of them was that ex-Brit. We, we all knew bloody well, or you don't need to listen to them talk. But, but, but uh, they said, well, we're not too sure, we're not too certain. There may have been up to some trickery or... So then the jury began to talk about the evidence. They considered the judge's advice before they left the court. The judge, he made it very, very simple when he was telling us how we were to come to our decision. I remember he was saying that the arms had to be brought in with the knowledge of the then Minister for Defence. Had to be for the use of the Irish Army. For you to find... For, for us to, to find, find them not guilty. To find them not guilty. That term, for the use of the Irish Army, the exact same phrase that the judge and the barristers had considered in legal argument. But if the guns were to be locked in a shed in a monastery garden, with Captain Kelly holding the key, did that amount to the use of the Irish Army? During the trial it came to light that there were members of the FCA in Derry. Then, the jury recalled that a section of the Irish Army, the part-time force known as the FCA, had enlisted and trained men from over the border in the city of Derry. We came to the conclusion that if there were members of the FCA stationed in Derry, that presumably the arms could have been for the use of the FCA. Finally, the jury had to make its decision. So it was a not guilty verdict, and that's what was handed out to the judge. Not guilty for all four men. After just two hours and ten minutes of jury deliberation, the four men had won. In the 50 years since those two words, not guilty, were uttered in the four courts, reputations have been trashed, careers have been built and hearts have been broken. Winners would become losers and losers would become winners. How did that happen? And why is the arms trial still the defining political scandal of modern Ireland? Find out in our final episode. Episode 9 of Gunplot. As you can imagine, there's so much more to this story. We've put a list of books on our website, rte.ie Gunplot. It includes the books of the two people on whose work we've drawn heavily. Michael Heaney's The Plot That Never Was and David Burke's Lies and Deception. Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. Sound by Damien Chanel. Production assistance from Liam O'Brien and the Documentary on One Team. Additional assistance from Sean McGillifourick and Roshi O'Dee. Archive material has come from the RTE radio and TV archives as well as the detail.tv. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, 
also titled Gunplot and available on the RTE player. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE Documentary on One production. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.